Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. And with me today, our special guest is Dr. Craig Keener. So I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's, it's really my privilege to be with you. You know, uh, Dr. Keener, one of the things I was so excited uh, to interview you, I was bragging to my friends, hey, I'm getting to interview Dr. Keener because we use a lot of your materials because a lot of the background that you go into in the text, it really helps bring out what the author's intent was through the Holy Spirit in writing uh, the Word of God. But what I love to do as well is share your testimony I've seen your testimony shared a number of times online where you've given it, and I would love for people to hear how you came to know Jesus from your background and maybe the witnessing encounter that took place that helped to bring you to Christ. Sure. <clears throat> when, when I was, um, well, I didn't grow up in a in a church-going family. We didn't really talk about religion, and I mean, the the you know, once in a while we talked about something like I asked one of my parents, do you believe in life after death? And or maybe they asked me, I forget. Anyway, I said, I don't. And they said, no, neither do I. Um, but I started reading Plato when I was 13. And Plato didn't always give the best answers, but he did ask some important questions. And one of the one of the questions he really raised was the issue of the immortality of the soul and even though I wasn't persuaded by his argument, it really got me thinking about, boy, if there's no life after death, what's going to happen? I mean, and if there is life after death, well, what's that going to be like and what what's going to happen with that? So I figured, you know, if you're really smart, you really, you, you care about your own existence, that's something you really should think about. But I didn't have good answers to it. I tried to solve it philosophically and you know, read read about different religions, different philosophies, but um, finally, I think I was probably 15, 14 or 15, I started saying, God or gods or whatever, <laughs> if you're out there, please show me, because I realized that <clears throat> nothing finite could guarantee eternal life. Only someone infinite could guarantee that. And even if that person were infinite, they'd have to be infinitely loving to want to care about somebody like me. And so I was, uh, I figured I was up a creek. <laughs> but, I, you know, I tried to work my way around it philosophically. But, uh, but I did have this prayer. I didn't, I didn't call it a prayer at that point. But one day, a couple very conservative Christians dressed in in uh, black suits and, and ties stopped me on the street and asked me if I knew where I was going to go when I died. Well, that was the kind of question to ask me. <laughs> and so I got into an argument with them for about 45 minutes because 
they they told me, okay, here's what the Bible says about how Jesus died for you and rose again, and you can be made right with God. And that was fine, except, as I pointed out to him after a while, look, you guys, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the Bible. Can you give me some evidence for what you believe? So a little bit of apologetics may have helped at that point, but they uh, they weren't real strong on apologetics. And especially when I said, okay, if there's a dinosaur bone, I'm sorry, if there's a God, where do the dinosaur bones come from? You ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. I mean, I mean, obviously God could create dinosaurs like he could create anything else. But anyway, their answer was the devil put them there to fool us. Now, they weren't trained in apologetics. They were definitely not trained in paleontology. <laughs> but they gave me the gospel. And they were the only people available out in the street to to give me the gospel. I mean, there were plenty of other Christians, but they were, you know, they'd show up in the churches, but they didn't normally try to witness to people, at least not not cold on the street. <clears throat> I said, okay, I'll see you guys later. And they started walking off and, and the, um, uh, the one of them, the more vocal of them said, you know, you're hardening your heart against God. Your heart will become harder and harder and eventually you'll become incapable of repentance and you will burn in hell forever. This isn't normally the way we recommend, say, friendship evangelism or whatever, but you know what? <laughs> it really uh, spoke to my, <laughs> to my concern. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but also it was different because, I mean, I'd studied different religions. I'd studied different philosophies. You know, I'd, I'd had conversations about it, but this was different. As I walked away, I was feeling an overwhelming sense of God's presence. So, you know, their witness may not have been perfect in every respect, but it was a witness. And it was the only witness I had. Um, and that's what the Holy Spirit used. God takes the gospel. He confronts us through the gospel. As I walked home, I was so overwhelmed by the presence of God, which I'd never recognized before got to my room, still debating it back and forth until I was just overwhelmed with God's presence. And, you know, I wanted <laughs> I wanted uh, historical evidence, I wanted scientific evidence, whatever, those would be great. But what God gave me on that day was the evidence of his presence. And it was so overwhelming. I mean, God was right there in the room with me. And I prided myself on my intellect. Uh, although if I admitted there was a God, I was going to have to eat crow and go back to all the Christians I'd made fun of and admit you guys were right. I was wrong. <laughs> but I prided myself on my intellect and it was like, I'd have to be really stupid to say no to the God who's actually here right now. So I said, all right, God, I don't understand how to be made right with you. But, you know, if 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 it's Jesus died for me and rose again, if that's what you're saying, I'll accept it. I believe it. But God, I don't know how to be made right with you. I don't know how to be saved. So if you want to save me, you're going to have to do it yourself. Which, of course, was the right thing to, to say, but I didn't know that. <laughs> All of a sudden, I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I jumped up, totally scared out of my mind, not knowing what had just happened to me. But if this was God, I really wanted to, to follow him. And then a couple of days later, I, <clears throat> I found a church, walked into a church, and 
pastor asked me if I was sure that I, because I told him I, I'd given my life to, to Christ. He asked me if I was sure if I'd done it. I said, actually, I don't know if I did it right. <laughs> so he led me in the, the traditional sinner's prayer. And I felt the same overwhelming sense of God's presence again. And God is so awesome. He's so great. I mean, how could I praise him enough unless he gave me the words to do it? And God knows lots of languages. It, the praise started coming out in another language. I didn't even know that was in the Bible. <laughs> there was something called that in the Bible, but that was the beginning of my Christian life, which was followed by um, rapid cramming because the little kids in Sunday school knew more about the Bible than I did, so I had to work to catch up. I think, I mean, that is just such a beautiful testimony. And if you guys weren't listening, one of the reasons that I love using that example, especially discipling younger men, is saying, look it, he can use this sort of gospel witness to help, you know, convert someone who would become one of the top scholars in Christendom. I mean, in terms of the Christian realm, I mean, the litany of books that I have on my desk right now, specifically that have the name Keener on them, I mean, they just, they stacked up. In fact, even in front of me right now, I'm, I'm looking at your Acts commentary. This is one of four parts. This is your book on miracles, which I want to talk about both of those later in the show. But I just, you know, it means so much to hear your testimony and to hear it from you and to say, if God can use that witness, I believe he can use anybody who's faithfully witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, you know, Dr. Keener, one of the things also that I I had heard you said previously in another interview, was when you talked about how you really got into looking at the background of so many texts and looking at the context of it. And a lot of it stems from being challenged on a doctrine that was being taught at your church by a loving pastor who cared about you and thought you were obviously believing something that was wrong and was trying to share the truth with you. But you started digging in, and I'd love for you to give that that story to us as well. Sure. Yeah, I... Well, I guess picking up where I left off in the sense that I had to catch up with the little kids in Sunday school, I, I uh, heard from a, a visiting uh, teacher in the church about how he would read through the New Testament every week. And so I started a regimen of that where I would read 40 chapters of the New Testament a day uh, or, or of the Bible a day. Uh, sometimes I you can get through the whole month. Uh, sorry, the whole Bible in one month, if you do that, or you can get through the New Testament once a week. And as I started doing that, the the context started coming back to me. Like I'd hear a verse, and instead of hearing it as an isolated verse, as a proof text, I would think of, you know, the whole context, you know, what it wasn't just a verse here and a verse there. There were a lot of verses in between that need, you know, if we really believe the Bible is the word of God, we need to pay attention to those verses in between as well. Well, um, my my pastor taught that the church would be raptured before the tribulation. And, you know, this is not a, an issue of orthodoxy. And, and my pastor didn't consider it that way either. I mean, he said he had a professor in Bible college who was post-tribulational, but, you know, the denomination and the school were officially pre-tribulational, and that's that's what he was, the idea that the church would be raptured before the tribulation. And I had kind of dutifully accepted that along with the other things I was taught. But most of the other things I was taught, you know, the, the, the verses that were given to back them up, 
made sense in context. That one, none of the verses in context seemed to say that. And finally, at one point, I realized, you know, this this doesn't work. This, all these verses are out of context. My pastor was like, okay, well, we have, we have a difference of opinion. Not, not, a, not a problem, but a guest speaker. Again, he was very, very gracious, um, but he wanted to make sure I had it right. So he, he was like very convinced. That was one of the big things he taught as he traveled from church to church was that, you know, the church will not go through the tribulation. Uh, he also taught some other things like that the rapture would surely happen before 1978. So he, uh, he took me aside. He spent all afternoon giving me these verses, trying to show me why the church would be raptured before the tribulation. And I, each time I'd, I'd point to the context and say, well, look, look, look at this verse in the context. It's not saying what you're saying it's saying. And finally, he got exasperated. And he said, look, you've only been a Christian for like two years. And you know, it's true. I had been beaten from my faith by that point. I had my life threatened from my faith by that point. But he said, you've only been a Christian for two years. Look at all, all men of God. All men of God are pre-tribulational. Jimmy Swaggart is pre-tribulational. Jim Baker is pre-tribulational. Who do you think you are? To which point I said, okay, I guess you're right. It doesn't look like it says that to me, but who am I to argue with these great men of God. But then later, I heard someone else explain that nobody until 1830 taught that the rapture was before the tribulation. So all men and women of God before 1830 <laughs> believed that the church would go through the tribulation. And that was also the view of a whole lot of other people today. I just didn't, didn't know about it. And I was like, you know what, from now on, I'm just going to I'm just going to explore the Bible for what it says. I'm not going to take what people tell me it says. I'm going to read it for myself. <laughs> I think that is absolutely beautiful. And, you know, one of the cool things when I hear you tell that story is what was birthed out of it? Because it seemed like there was so much, you know, that two years, like you said, I, you know, I've only been a Christian two years, but, you know, he's saying these are what I, you should believe and I'm, I'm not seeing it. But he's saying, you know what, I'm not just going to, you know, appeal to authority even though it's great to look at how the Holy Spirit has used men throughout the years and a lot of your studies. But, you know, would you say that did help to give birth to a lot of your background series as well? It certainly gave birth to me trying to be honest with the biblical text. I mean, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And so part of fearing the Lord is fearing, fearing him more than people. We want to hear in the Bible, not just something that confirms our traditions, or, or our pre-existing ideas, or certainly what is comfortable, we want to hear it for what it says. And, you know, people may disagree on, you know, the timing of when the Lord's coming back, um, especially when people set dates, they've always been wrong so far. <laughs> uh, but Jesus warned something about that. But, um, but knowing that, uh, you know, knowing that we need to just listen to the Bible, really immerse ourselves in the Bible. I mean, that was that was the big turning point. That's what really changed my life. And so uh, at another point also, as, as I'm reading like these 40 chapters a day, uh, where it clicked for me was, was one time I was reading Romans chapter one, 
and it said Paul was writing this to the believers in Rome. And I'm like, mm, if I take this verse as seriously as I take like these verses that I memorized, that means this is actually really a letter to the saints in Rome. And that means I need to try to understand what Paul was saying to them. And there were things, and this is even clearer in 1 Corinthians, where Paul knew the situation that was going on. Obviously, his audience knew the situation that was going on. And <clears throat> we don't. And so it's like listening in on one side of a telephone conversation to, to some degree. So, I mean, we get the general principles, but then there are a lot of things like the customs, like the, the head coverings, uh, the holy kiss, and so on, where I, I was so puzzled by it. You know, I, I was like, well, it says we should greet one another with a holy kiss. I better do that. But I was kind of scared to try it on anybody. <laughs> and, then, and then there were also passages like, you know, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I mean, you can, you can try to apply it as much as you want, but if you try to actually go to Troas and literally get Paul's cloak and bring it to him, you're in trouble, right? So I needed to understand better the situations. Before my conversion, I'd really been into Greek and Roman studies. I'd read Homer, I'd read Virgil, I'd read Tacitus and so on, Plato. But I hadn't seen the relevance of it to the Bible um, very much. But as I began to look at the Jewish context, I immediately could see the relevance. And eventually I was able to get back and see, okay, using it this way, I can see the relevance of the Greek background, the Roman background, and and so forth. And and that became, just as my desire was to understand scripture, it, it created in me a thirst for the background, a passion for the background. And, and I worked I kept working on that. I, I mean, I was just going to go to Bible college for two years and go out and preach, but because I needed more background, <laughs> I kept going. <laughs> and finally, when I was about done with my PhD, I said, okay, if nobody else writes something like this and just puts it at people's fingertips, then I'm going to, I'm just going to write a background commentary that'll give background passage by passage and we'll, I think I had like 70,000 index cards back then. We didn't have, uh, we couldn't put things on flash drives yet. Barely had computers at that point. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I got into the background. That's the background if I've got into background. That's the background of the background commentary. I love that. And, yeah, I guess there's no more floppy disks now, uh, but... <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, you know, one of the one of the things I heard you speak to and it, it blessed my heart a ton. And it was specifically dealing when when you were in Bible college and that it seemed like there was a difference between those who were more exegetical and into the scripture and then those who were, you know, spiritual and really into praying. And, you know, I'd love for you to give a little background on that and then what you found, whether or not there really should have been a divide there. Yeah, I, I actually was um, I was in the spiritual camp rather than the academic camp. I figured, okay, when I was an atheist, my intellectual pride led me astray, and these people are just too proud. But, Lord, I, I do believe that you called me to go to Bible college so I could learn Greek and Hebrew. So I was in the, you know, the language courses. And... I had been warned about this one professor 
because he was supposed to be not spiritual enough because he was too academic. Um, they said, you know, he doesn't, uh, they, they, they said, you know, if you're really spiritual, you have these certain beliefs about um, confessing things and they happen and so on. And he didn't believe those things. So he wasn't really spiritual. But when I was in, uh, when I was, I started praying for him and the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, I've given him the gift of teaching. You need to listen to him. So I signed up for three classes with him the next semester. And in some of those classes, well, in, in, in Greek, I could feel the Holy Spirit. Now that was, that was impressive. But also in some of those classes with him, I would <clears throat> feel something from the Holy Spirit in prayer. And like a week later, he would cover it in class based on the text. And it was like, okay, so hearing from the Holy Spirit in prayer and hearing from the Holy Spirit through exegesis both lead in the same direction. I need to pay attention to this. And I already loved exegesis. I was, you know, I was pretending like I wasn't using my mind, but I mean, what was I doing when I was exegeting? So eventually I realized that the dichotomy wasn't wasn't a biblical one. And actually in my book, Mind of the Spirit, is partly addressing that, showing how much the Bible says about the mind. And, you know, it talks not just about God's spirit bearing witness with our spirit, but also the mind of the spirit and the renewing of the mind and so on. So God's spirit addresses, well, the, the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, he speaks of praying with one's spirit, maybe the affective aspect of the person, and praying with one's mind. In, in context, he's applying that to uh, tongues and interpretation, but the, the overall principle I think is, I mean, it tells us that God cares about empowering both, and we don't need to have that kind of dichotomy. I think historically it goes back to, you know, you had the uh, academic elite in the seminaries versus the frontier revivals. And sometimes the academic elite in the seminaries could get a little bit, you know, <laughs> micromanaging details while people in the frontier revivals were trying to reach people for Christ and you had a tension between them. And sometimes the tension between different gifts in the body is just a matter of us having too much pride to respect one another's gifts. Amen. And I remember just hearing that and I thought to myself, I could not give more of an amen to specifically that idea that I, I feel just, I've, felt the Holy Spirit just off reading a text that I had been praying for insight from the Lord, where I'm like, Lord, I'm I'm not understanding this. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. And then I'm like, now I get it. <laughs> and I'm like, I would not have gotten that just reading it through. But the Lord, I believe, brings those things out. Because if we're, if we're really Holy Spirit-filled people, we're going to be people of his word, because Second Peter says that, he wrote it, <laughs> that the Holy Spirit moved the men of God to write the Word of God. So just absolutely blessed by that and and to hear that. And I want to give a little background of how I even came across your Acts commentary, because what took place was I had found a book. I had read um, Lee Strobel's book, uh, A Case for Christ, a, a Case for Creator, and so forth. And then I found A Case for Miracles, and I thought, this is an interesting book. 
And then he mentions you in the book, an interview that he sat down with you for that book. And then he mentions that this comment or this book on miracles, which is over a thousand pages, volume one and volume two, came because it started from a footnote in this book, this four-part series, which is that about 6,000 pages, I think, you've put together uh, for the four-part series right around there? It came out to uh, 4,500 pages or so. Uh, the pages are small print, so, you know, if it were larger print, it'd be 6,000. Now, if it had pictures, whoa, that would be very large. <laughs> yes, but this Acts commentary, the, just the background and the detail that you go into. By the way, I heard that you're also working on one. I know you got your first Peter that was more recent. I got that, and I read that one. And I know you have a more extensive uh, one you're working on right now on Mark. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you're putting one, together a commentary. That one won't be, won't be out for a few more years, but yeah. And there, there's also an abridged Acts commentary. Uh, I had to cut like 92% of the material to get it down to uh, six or 700 pages, but it's it's um, for people who can't afford the big one, <laughs> there's the little one. Well, they come in volume, so you can get them one by one, as that's what, uh, actually, I've been giving a, get, getting them by gifts, and... You know, I'd love to maybe start a little bit talking about the book of Acts because I think this commentary is wonderful. Um, I think, I guess let's just start with the first question that seemingly is answered in the commentary, and that is the genre of the book of Acts. Hmm. On this one, uh, there's not as much debate. I mean, there is there is debate on everything in scholarship, but the majority of scholars regard Acts as a historical monograph. So, most scholars believe that Acts is trying to write history, not just make up a story. Um, some have compared it with a novel, and you know, novels are are narrative, just like history is narrative. So, I mean, there are, there are some things that overlap in terms of narrative techniques that are in both history and in novel. But ancient novels were usually romances, which is a feature notoriously lacking in the Book of Acts as well as in the Gospels. And also, novels were rarely about actual historical characters. Usually they were about made-up characters. When they were about historical characters, they were normally about historical characters of the very distant past. I don't know if they were scared somebody was going to sue them. <laughs> Probably not. But, um, but normally they would only write those about people of the very distant past. Whereas um, Hellenistic historians considered the best historiography to be written from a contemporary standpoint. That is, where you're researching things where eyewitnesses are still alive. You can interview the eyewitnesses, or at least you can interview the people who knew the eyewitnesses. And uh, Luke, in his preface of of, uh, his two-volume work, Luke Acts, actually tells us that he has material going back to the eyewitnesses. And he also confirmed things that, you know, Theophilus, he's, he, he mentions uh, his dedicatee of his book is Theophilus. He says, I'm confirming the things that you've already heard about. Well, I went back and I checked them out. Uh, and actually his wording may even suggest he was part of some of those things, which is why we have the the we in, in a lot of the um, final uh, section of the book of Acts. Well, I, you know, let's, I want to dig into that a little bit because these we chapters as well, 
Um, Because we're talking about who wrote uh, Acts as well. So I guess I, I guess I get lead in that way. Who do you believe wrote Acts? And what are the we chapters of the book of Acts? Yeah. Now, this one is more debated than the genre. But I, I think still a majority of scholars, and this is actually according to the scholars who hold a different view, the majority of scholars do believe that um, that an eyewitness is the source of the we material in the book of Acts. And I think if you narrow down from Paul's letters, the names of the eyewitnesses who could possibly fit the bill, I think Luke is the best one. That's also what was held by the early church uh, not not too long after the book of Acts is written. Uh, like like within a few generations, we have that being, being noted, which is, is significant in that you know, when we're dealing with classical sources from antiquity, you, usually you have attestations of authorship. If it's not mentioned in the, in the book itself, the, the attestations are often a lot later. So, you know, we have pretty early attestation of that. In terms of the, the we material, people have tried to explain that in different ways, but the simplest explanation, which also is the, I th- well, this is one thing where, just having read through ancient historians and ancient biographers, I can't see it being something different, but that's not to say it's not debated. That the we actually means that the the narrator was present on the occasions where the we is mentioned. I mean, that's, that's what it normally means in Greek. That's what it normally means, certainly in ancient historiography. If you're writing a novel, uh, you know, Fictitious work will have a fictitious we or a fictitious I, fictitious narr- narrator, but not not in historical works. And uh, yeah, Sir Arthur Darby Nock, one of the leading uh, Harvard classicists of the 20th century, noted that he could think of at most one example in all of ancient literature where, uh, well, in all of ancient historiography, where where the we wasn't actually meaning that the author was or the narrator was present, and I can't even think of one. But but I I I, I concede that probably with the vast amount of literature there, somewhere it probably did happen. But the vast vast majority of cases, we meant we, the we picks up in in. Troas is, is Paul and, and Silas are traveling from Troas to Philippi. It leaves off in Philippi in chapter uh, 16 and picks up again in chapter 20 when Paul comes back to Philippi years later. So it makes sense that way. If so, and if somebody were going to make it up, you'd think they would make up being present at, at the empty tomb or the day of Pentecost or something like that. You know, <laughs> But it's just this... This person is traveling with Paul, and so he, you know, he's very unobtrusive in mentioning himself. He just says "we." Um, but the final quarter of the Book of Acts is all "we" material, and that means that the "we" narrator, whom I take to be Luke, was with Paul when he traveled to Judea, uh, when Paul was there in Caesarea for up to two years and then continued to, to voyage with Paul 
to Rome in chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. Um, it's uh, 24, 27, where he was with, uh, where, where, where Paul was in Judea for up to two years. So taking that into account, it seems to me he would have had plenty of time to actually consult the eyewitnesses he mentions in Luke chapter 1. And, you know, for the final quarter of Acts, he doesn't need any other eyewitnesses because he was there himself. And again, if you if you look through Paul's letters to see who was with him during his imprisonment or his, his Roman custody, you've got a handful of people. It can't be Aristarchus because Aristarchus is, is differentiated by name. Uh, certain other people it can't be because they're differentiated by name. So by process of elimination, it comes down pretty close to to Luke, the beloved physician, Colossians 4.14. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you so much for that. And we are talking with Dr. Craig Keener here. And, you know, since you got wrote the commentary on Acts, you also have, uh, I'm trying to say it properly, Christography, is that... How I'm, how I'm saying it? I, I'm, I'm sure I'm messing that one up. No, uh, you're fine. Christ, Christobiography. <laughs> Christobiography. And I, I want to ask you, because this this falls under the same line, because we have Acts, as you said, kind of a, a two-part series there from Luke, and then we also have the Gospels. So I, I want to ask you, as a, as a New Testament scholar, specifically, what is it that makes you believe that not only Acts, but also the Gospels themselves are historically reliable enough to tell us about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> when, we, when we look at ancient genres, ancient genres don't always correspond well to modern ones, like apocalyptic literature, you know, science fiction, <laughs> not really. But we, we don't really have a category for that so well in our in our modern culture. But in the case of biography, modern biography evolved from ancient biography. Modern historiography evolved from ancient historiography. They, they wrote them in different ways than we do today, but we can, just, we can just take that into account. But biography in the early Roman Empire was a form of historiography. And that's usually concluded by, by those who specialize in that. Um, again, ancient historiography was written differently back then than it is today. Um, but again, we take those conventions into account when we when we learn from it. But in terms of ancient biography, the nature of ancient biography kind of evolved from from like say classical Athens. It was kind of like funeral eulogies for people who were still alive. You know, you'd, you'd brag on them, say all sorts of nice things about them. Uh, if you liked them, leave out the bad things. Or if you disliked them, you'd say all sorts of bad things about them and leave out the good things. Well, you know, that's still a characteristic of some biographies even today, <laughs> depending on who's writing them. But uh, by the time you get to the, the early Roman Empire, uh, and, and I'm not expecting everybody to to know these names, but say from Cornelius Nepos at the end of the Roman Republic to as late as Diogenes Laertius in the early third century, you have the apex of historiographic concern in ancient biography. In other words, 
this is when they tried most of all to be an information-based genre. They, 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 they weren't just trying to make things up. They were trying to give historical information about, about the person. Now, it wasn't historical information just like, here's just information just so you can do whatever you want with it. Um, th those were antiquarians who wrote like that. But biographers, they would write about the person, but as a model for emulation. You know, you can imitate this person or don't imitate what this person did wrong or, or so on. Uh, sometimes they had uh, political themes or, or different morals and, and so on. But, uh, you know, it, it shouldn't surprise us the Gospels have theological purposes, uh, certain things they want to communicate, but they were supposed to communicate these things not, this, not the way you would in a philosophic essay, like in Plato or something, or, well, Plato also used dialogue, well, especially used dialogues, but they would communicate them through historical information. And especially those that would be most reliable in general would be those from within living memory. So those that could depend on eyewitnesses or those who knew the eyewitnesses. Uh, even today in oral historiography, that's the, the period that is expected to be most careful with the evidence, um, most uh, consistent with, with what was originally spoken. So, you know, the Gospels fit that. All the first century Gospels are by definition first century, and therefore all of them are within living memory, which is usually held to be about 60 to 80 years. You know, well, the Gospel of Mark, the usual critical dating of Mark is around 40 years after Jesus' public ministry. That's well within the period of, of living memory. And within living memory of when Mark was written, actually, you have someone who says he got it from somebody who, who knew the circumstances directly, that Mark actually got his information directly from Peter, which would also explain why Matthew and Luke um, use so much, of, so much of Mark's material because they're trying to write an information-based genre. And here they have something that they trust is genuinely information-based. And I, I suspect that they, as first century authors, were in a much better position to know what was consistent with actual historical information than our modern scholars' guesses. Again, I'm not putting down modern scholars. I am one. But, um, but you know, here we have some good material to work with. <laughs> we should pay attention to it and not, you know, you have people running off after these so-called lost gospels that were written, you know, from anywhere like 110 years after Jesus' ministry to like 900 years after Jesus' ministry. Why not use the first century sources? <laughs> I could not agree more with you, obviously. And, you know, one of the great things, too, because this this Miracles, you know, two-part series that you put together, this came out, am I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were writing a footnote in the Acts commentary, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, because one of the arguments, well, one of the arguments against the we narratives is that people say Luke couldn't have known Paul because he thinks differently from Paul. Well, sometimes he does think differently from Paul, but um, nobody says Paul wrote the book of Acts. I mean, if, if one of my students were 
saying, okay, this is what Craig Keener taught us. My student would probably emphasize a certain side of what I taught. They wouldn't give you everything that I taught. And some of the things that some scholars in the mid 20th century were saying that Luke doesn't fit Paul. They said, no, Luke makes Paul too Jewish. Uh, actually, Paul was Jewish, you know, and most, most Pauline scholars today say, no, actually, Paul, Paul was more Jewish than those mid 20th century scholars thought. So that was one of the arguments against it. But another argument that actually was pretty much the basis, the main basis for doubting the historical reliability of the Gospels and Acts was people would say, well, look, one third of the Gospel of Mark includes miracles. One fifth of the, of the book of Acts includes miracles. And since we know that miracles don't happen, obviously uh, these, these, uh, you know, these writers must have been you know, not very careful. Um, David Friedrich Strauss in the 1800s said, okay, some of the things may have may have been real, but but these, this miracle stuff, this was this arose as a process of legend over many generations, which doesn't work with first century gospels. But uh, he he you know he dated them later than than we can date them today, and so. Uh, the interesting thing is that Strauss had a friend by the name of Edward Morica who had a diagnosed spinal problem, and Morica could barely walk. But then Morica spent some time visiting German Lutheran pastor Johann Christoph Blumhardt in the Black Forest region of Germany, who was known for a ministry of healing, uh, healing prayer and deliverance. And Pretty soon, Strauss finds out that Morica is now hiking in the mountains. And so what does Strauss do? He, he says, okay, his diagnosed spinal problem must have been purely psychosomatic. But what he can't do is say that it was merely a legend that arose over generations of time. He can't be consistent with what he knows, but he's so driven by his philosophic presuppositions inherited from, from David Hume you go back and read Hume's essay, it's full of holes. <laughs> and, and philosophers today have been, you know, pointing out a lot of these holes in his essay. But, you know, he, he had a big reputation because of a lot of his other work. And so as a result of that, Humean skepticism kind of carried the day in a lot of circles. So a lot of people just assume these things don't happen and that eyewitnesses would never claim that they happen. Well, I knew eyewitnesses who had claimed that some of these things happened. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to add in a footnote here that says it's naive to say that eyewitnesses never claim this stuff. Lots of eyewitnesses do claim this stuff. And I was just going to find like a couple works, maybe a, a missiology dissertation or something that, that cited like maybe a few hundred eyewitness claims. So at least, you know, so people can see whether they believe their miracles or not, at least recognize that eyewitnesses do believe that they see these things and claim that they see these things. And there's no reason to have to say something is legend generations later. But I didn't initially find anything that, that listed all that. And, and certainly I didn't find something that had the medical documentation, which would make it even better. Initially, I didn't find that. And so my footnote kept growing and growing. And it was really intriguing to me. 
Well, after a couple hundred pages, you know, obviously it can't be a footnote. It was a chapter by that point by, by itself. And I said to the publisher, you know what? This may need to be a separate book. Well, while things were going gradually with the publisher, the 200 pages kept growing and growing. And so it was 1,100 pages by the time it came out. It would be longer than that if we were still uh, doing it. I, I do have a, another book on miracles due out around October 2021, but it's, uh, it's abridged. It's not, <laughs> it's not 1,100 pages. It's closer to 300. Uh, so I tried to narrow it down to uh, some of the more uh, interesting ones and also uh, tried to focus on newer ones that weren't in the in the previous book. Well, you know what? Maybe I, I think it would be great if you just went maybe for one of your more compelling, I mean, evidence, as you mentioned, in terms of even having medical records on some of these miracles and maybe some even more from a modern perspective of today. I mean, is God still doing miracles today, Dr. Keener? Oh my, yes. <laughs> okay, okay, well, one one example with, with medical documentation, this was actually in the first book also. Lisa Larios um, was dying of hip cancer. It had already metastasized. That's why she was dying. This was, I think, in the, in the 70s. Uh, it, it, I have the details in the book, so this is off the top of my head. But she she was she was dying of this. Her parents hadn't told her she was dying. All she knew was at this point she couldn't walk. She was in a wheelchair, and a neighbor convinced the mother to take Lisa to a uh, a healing meeting where there was going to be healing prayer. And the mother was kind of not convinced, but just you know desperate took her to this meeting, but still hadn't told her she was dying, still hadn't told her that she had a reticulum cell sarcoma of the right pelvic bone that had now metastasized. And during this meeting, actually, nobody laid hands on her. Nobody prayed for her individually. But the person up front was saying, I feel like God is healing somebody's hip cancer. And Lisa didn't know that that's what she had exactly. But Suddenly she jumps out of her wheelchair and starts running around. Their mother's like, panic, no, you can't do this. <laughs> you're, you're, there's no hip bone there anymore. It's going to collapse. And what happened was she was completely healed. She, she walks home, shocks her father, father by walking in, pushing her own wheelchair. And the doctor who reports this in his book supplies before and after x-rays that show that not only was she completely healed of hip cancer, but where her bone had been eaten away, her bone was completely restored. <laughs> he had uh, other doctors look at this. They all signed on. Um, then he went on national television with this and had her, um, had her with him. And he, he says that, I forget what floor they were on, like the 11th floor or something in the hotel as you know, in different rooms as they were getting ready for the television interview the next day. Uh, but they all, uh, he and, and her family and the TV people had, had dinner together the night before. They, they took the elevator up to, to their floor. She ran up the stairs just to show <laughs> she could. Um, there, there, there are plenty of other things. I mean, one that touched me most 
We don't have medical documentation for this because it was in a country where, well, it was in a place where they didn't even have medical help, much less medical documentation. That's probably one reason why it had to happen this way. But um, Antoinette Malombe, uh, I, I'd heard the story before, but when I was able to interview her, I got more, more of the details. She said that her daughter, Therese, when she was two years old, cried out that she was bitten by a snake. Her mother got to her, found her not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village, so she strapped her to her back and ran to a nearby village where a family friend, Coco Ngoma Moise, was doing ministry. So I asked him, to, uh, well, actually, I better finish the story before I tell you what I asked her. So Coco Moise prayed for her. She started breathing again right away. The next day she was fine. No brain damage. Well, you know, five, six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage starts in. So I asked her, how long was it that Therese wasn't breathing? She had to stop and think. I'm going up this hill, down that hill, from this village to that village. She said, about three hours. Now, that's not the, the longest period of time that I have, I have reports for. But this one was particularly interesting to me because Therese is my sister-in-law who now has a master's degree. And Antoinette Malambe was my mother-in-law. And not to doubt one's mother-in-law, but we also did consult Coco Ngoma Moise, who also attested the, the account. That was kind of a turning point for me and my own, you know, um, you know, as a Christian, I'm supposed to believe in miracles, but I was kind of, I still had a little bit of that skepticism in the, from <laughs> my background. But yeah, that, that kind of got me thinking, okay, sometimes I need to be skeptical of skepticism because it's just, it's just too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, amen. We actually had uh, something similar happen at our fellowship here uh, with a man uh, named Mike who actually had a cardiac arrest on the side of the freeway and a young lady uh, grabbed him and took him to the hospital and he went 46 minutes without oxygen uh, wow. to the brain. And I was there praying over him one day uh, with Pastor Joe from Good Fight Ministries and uh, then the next day, and I, I looked at it, somebody I thought, you know, he's probably not going to be ever the same if he even comes back. And then it was the very next day, Pastor Joe was there and he ended up uh, coming back, and even uh, Joe's daughter, my sister-in-law, actually had said she's a, she's a nurse, and she said, "Yeah, but you know what? He's probably not going to be able to, you know, be able to think or talk. You know, he, this could be all you get back." And then when uh, Pastor Joe went to go drop off food at his house, he answered the door, <laughs> and said yeah. hello, and so we we do believe here that the Lord is is doing uh, miracles. And I only have about five minutes left uh, with you, but. One of the things I wanted to ask, which I found very interesting, considering some of the people that typically follow him um, and what they believe concerning miracles and gifts and so forth, was uh, Augustine. And mm -hmm. Augustine's, I, I guess you would say, conversion on what he believed uh, about God still performing miracles in his day. Mm. Sure. <clears throat> there was a point at which Augustine believed that miracles had ceased, although he clarifies that later in his, in his retractions and says, I never believed they'd ceased completely. I just didn't believe that they happened like in apostolic times where uh, everybody prayed for, got healed, and everybody, when they 
were baptized, they came up speaking in tongues. I'm, I'm not sure that was true actually in the first century either, but that's what Augustine thought. He said, I, I already knew that people sometimes got healed, but Augustine really retracted the whole thing. Uh, he, he, he didn't believe that everybody always got healed in his own day, uh, but he retracted the idea that uh, miracles had ceased for the most part. He had a friend named Innocent who had um, anal fistulas, and they were operated on, but they didn't get them all. And back then, people sometimes bled to death during operations. They had no anesthesia. So he's praying with his friend Innocent the night before the next surgery. And Innocent is wailing, crying out to God, please have mercy on him. And Augustine is like, oh no, God, I can't even concentrate on praying this guy so loud. But Lord, if, if this can't move your heart, what would possibly move your heart? Augustine went in with him the next day. The surgeons removed the bandages. The fistula was gone, even though it had been diagnosed by a couple doctors. Um, Augustine himself was healed of a, of a tooth ailment, which we might think is minor, but that's because we have good dentists, most of us. Um, but also, uh, once, once he started being open to this, he said, well, let's start collecting these accounts so we can give glory to God for these things. So over the course of two years, by the time he wrote City of God 22.8, they had a massive collection, a, a dossier of, of, I think, 72 or, or 70 um, healing accounts, affidavits from, from the eyewitnesses, including things like the healings of blindness and raisings from the dead. So if you're really open to it and you don't just dismiss it, there are things God is doing. And makes sense to pay attention to them so we can give God glory for those things. Amen. Let us always give God glory for doing those things. And I want to encourage you guys to not only check out uh, many of the books we have here, we'll put links in the descriptions to those, but also check out Dr. Craig Keener's YouTube channel, where I know I benefited so much when I was teaching through Revelation and specifically going through a lot of your background that you go through in very short videos. You know, some are seven minutes, some are 14 minutes, and you guys can check those out where you deal specifically with a lot of the churches there in Revelation, and you give a lot of the background there. And I've been really blessed by that, by a lot of your works, and the fact that you can be a scholar, but also, you know, that spiritual and exegetical kind of divide that we can bridge that uh, gap and say, let's also recognize what the Lord does when we are truly seeking out the truth in His Word. Amen. Amen. Thank and, you, Chad. And I want, to thank, I want to thank you guys for joining us. And uh, you have been sitting down with not only myself, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries, but Dr. Craig Keener, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. God bless. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062, or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.